this kid from Georgia just happened to come out of nowhere and find one. But that was months of work. I had to make a lot of phone calls to uh, eventually track her down. Do you mind if I ask how much you paid for that first female? I do mind. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to From the Ground Up Podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. So um, I do have some substrates available on the website, portcitypythons.com, T-shirts, isopods, all that good stuff. So I'd love for you guys to go check it out. Also, uh, I want to say that I had a great time this weekend in New Orleans at the Herp Show. So thank you to Sean and Lori for taking us out and uh, doing some karaoke, as well as having some fun on the... uh, what do you call that at the French Quarter, as well as uh, seeing Andy Hine at the French Quarter? Uh, I was randomly grabbed by someone from behind and kissed on the cheek while I was just walking down randomly, and uh, happened to be Andy Hine, and it was good seeing him because I haven't seen him through since Texas. Uh, yeah, so shout out to all those people. Really awesome, uh, really awesome weekend. Sean has a great show going on. And it's not just about the show. It's really about the people who did it as well as the people who came to hang out after. And uh, everyone definitely likes to have fun. So uh, once again, thank you guys so much for uh, for having me out there. And today's episode, we are back. I mean, I feel like we haven't talked about Morelia in so long. But today we have Casey Cannon, and people know Casey from uh, his work with Bread Lie as well as he's gone herping in Australia and lots of really awesome stuff. But let me let him tell you about that. So Casey Cannon, welcome. Hey, man, what's going on? Not much. I'm happy you could be here. We met at uh, Carpet Fest and uh, yeah, we had a good, a good time. time. Yeah, really good time. So let me know kind of how you got started in this reptile in mean- general. I think the story is usually pretty similar with everybody. You know, you're a kid who just likes to go outside, likes to look over stuff. Um, You know, I'd be catching uh, just the toads, the five line skinks, the eastern fence lizards and stuff we have out here in uh, North Georgia. So, you know, I've got stories where my grandmother, when I was like three years old, she's like, I know he loves turtles. So I caught an eastern box turtle and washed it with bleach and accidentally (laughs) killed it because I was going to give it to him, but I didn't want him to get sick. So, oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah, that's probably illegal too. So, uh, <laughs> definitely frowned upon. Hopefully, the uh, statute of limitations have, have been up. Yeah, for this them. was this was about 20 years ago. So, I, <laughs> I hope we're safe here. <laughs> so, what was the first animal that you kept in captivity? Um, I had a red eared slider for about nine years from like late elementary school into end of high school. So that was really my first, uh, that was my first reptile that we actually like bought from a pet store. I had, uh, you know, toads and stuff that I kept for a little while as a little kid, but you know, that's just something you'd have and you'd look at and you'd let go. So I had a red eared slider as my first reptile, I know, which I know like so many people have had at least uh, growing up, you have, or at least when, when we grew up, when you have like a local pet store that had a bunch of reptiles and that really got you interested in it, did you happen to have a, a local pet store like that? We had a pet store. It was called uh, Noah's Ark Pet Store. Um, I only went over there a couple of times. It wasn't like a, a monumental thing to me, but 
I don't know, when I was in probably fourth grade, my grandfather said, okay, we'll go to the pet store. I'll get you any pet you want. And I think my mom said, you know, no birds and no snakes. So I ended up getting a little baby turtle, which is honestly one of the worst things you can get. Like it's probably a step below a Burmese python or a, uh, an iguana as far as terrible things to get a child. Yeah, so. absolutely. When did you when did you take that journey into snakes, even though your mother didn't want you to? Uh, when I went to college, I was not allowed to have snakes ever. You know, I really wanted one. I actually really wanted bread lie from uh, since I was a freshman in high school when I first saw uh, Justin Julander's website, and he had a uh, a picture of Australia, and over the picture of Australia was a pattern of a Brettles python. So that was really the uh, the thing that I saw that really got me into that species to begin with, because I was like, that is the most amazing look. It looks like a tiger to me. So that's what I really liked was the tiger stripes, the black, the red, the yellow, uh, or creamish yellow on the stripes. So you went pretty deep initially. I mean, the fact that you yeah. found the website with Morelia on it and Breadlight in particular. I was big into researching stuff, even when I wasn't allowed to keep it. You know, I was, I would be looking up like, okay, let me learn about this animal. These, uh, like kinkachus were something I thought were super cool for a long time. I never wanted one as a pet or anything, but... I was like mildly obsessed with learning about kinkachus and then I would learn about, I don't know, like wallabies or anything like that. And I got into looking at snakes and reptiles. So I looked at ball pythons for a little while and really the morph game of ball pythons was kind of cool to look at, but I never uh, actually dove into it except for really recently when I got involved with Don Patterson in Canada, which we can talk about later. Um, but really, um, Australian pythons and Australian snakes in general are really one of the biggest things I liked to look at. You know, I was really obsessed with Morelia, actually, when I was probably 14 or 15. I didn't get snakes until I was probably 19. So was, so, that, was that the first snake you got once you got into college? First snake I ever spent money on was a pair of uh, Rettles pythons. Wow. Is there, is there any lineage on those animals? Did you care where you uh, get them from? They were, they were LASIK line. Um, I got them from a guy that I know now. I'd rather not say who it was because they were actually mite infested when I got them, which actually ended up saving my collection, to tell you the truth, because when I had that pair of brettles that had the mites, I brought them back to my house. And my mom was like, you were not keeping these. You've got to get rid of them, take them to that reptile show, and sell them off immediately. So I brought it in, and the guy took one look at it and says, no, dude, I'm not touching these. They have mites. So I had to bring them back and explain to my mom, like, oh, I got to treat them. They have mites. So I treated them. I got rid of the mites, and I just kept them after that. So, Is, is there something, too, like when you have to treat an animal for something? I mean, there's just a different emotional connection that you, you gain with the animal. Yeah, that was, that was really cool. And that female from that pair, the male was kind of a, like a really, really dark bread light. But that female is to this day one of the prettiest Brettles pythons I've ever seen. And I'm so upset that she ended up getting leukemia and dying mm. before I could ever breed her. And I would have loved to have gotten babies from that snake. Wow. So what did you, I mean, did you know keeping one? You said you, you did a lot of research. So, I mean, how did you come across it and how did you start keeping them? Like, did you, were you correct right off the bat or did you have to adjust? Oh, them? no, no, no. I hid these things. Uh, <laughs> first way I kept them was in a little shoebox with... Um, like one of those pet pad things you get from Petco or PetSmart or something like that, and I hid them under my dorm, uh, my dorm room bed. And I actually had, in my room, I had a baby bearded dragon. I ended up somehow getting a pair of Aki monitor lizards. I don't know. I don't really, 
remember how I got a hold of Aki monitor lizards that I just kept horrible care of. And then I got my Brettles pythons. And the day I got my Brettles pythons was the day my smoke alarm in my dorm room went off like that <laughs> night. So I had to like hide them and put them under a bunch of towels and stuff like that so that the people that were coming for maintenance wouldn't like find out I had illegal reptiles in my room. <laughs> damn so Aki's I mean same interest as far as like the red and you know yeah I, I love I love Aki's I um the, the story with those is kind of bad I uh was cleaning out their cage one day and I had a it was a rock or a log it was something relatively heavy and I accidentally dropped it and it landed right on my female Aki's head uh. so yeah I just I was fumbling around I heard I fell and I heard and yeah I I sold the mail pretty soon after that and was just, I, I, I might get some again one day, but that was just so heartbreaking that I was just like, I, I don't want these right now. Yeah, man. I think that that's, it's a good example for people to know that like, obviously in the beginning we all made mistakes. I mean, that's a mistake I could have made now though. That was just like a yeah, yeah, thing where I dropped it. it and she just happened to be right where I dropped it. So yeah, that but was, even that like was just... so heartbreaking. Yeah. Even just keeping a shoebox underneath your dorm bed and stuff like that. I mean, that's yeah. nothing that you're going to post up on a Facebook group and people are going to give no. you kudos for. Like, No, no, not at all. Oh, I'm so glad that I wasn't. I would have never posted something like that on Facebook to begin with. But right. yeah, no, I, um, I'm i actually in the process right now of trying to upgrade my cages as is because I'm still feeling kind of guilty that I have them in four by two by twos. So um, like I, it's always an evolving thing where you want to just – keep making your collection better so i'm actually going to reach out to uh lori torini pretty soon because she actually seems to know how to make a brettles cage better than anybody at this point if you know who that is yeah, uh, yeah of course she has she has some of yeah. our animals and she does some of the uh training videos and stuff with them which i think is really interesting yeah so at this point i think she knows how to do it better than anybody so i'm just gonna i don't know, give her a call or something in the next week or so just be like tell me what to do <laughs> you know how to do no. this better than me so you're you're really getting into as far as caging and stuff like that. Obviously you're you're keeping cages now, but you're also mm -hmm. trying to add like some type of enrichment and stuff like that. I I would like to. I'd like to just get more climbing space. Um I recently had a very large female uh, pass away. Um she had a, a spinal tumor. So I've had I've lost two brittles ever. Um both of which were to uh to cancers, but they were relatively old snakes. Um so I have an empty four by two by two right now. So what I think I want to do for at least a, a bigger hypo female I have is to uh, cut out the bottom of her cage and cut out the top of the other one so that she has almost a two layer cage. So I can have like a warm top area and then a bottom area she can go into that has more hides and more enrichment and probably really up my shelving and that kind of thing. Oh, okay. You remember those, those old, like, uh, animal plastics that had the shelving in it for the, for yeah, the Morelia yeah. in particular, like something like that or something more involved. Um, I don't really know right now. Um, I would like to be, you know, heights, heights really important. I don't really know if substrates that important. Like, um, with my blue tongue skinks, I've kind of accidentally gone bioactive, but I don't know if, uh, I'm going to push that for the, the brittles. I do know that Lori has had some interesting uh, observations with uh, having a humid hide box, which is something I've never done and something I've always kind of been like, why would you ever want to do that? And then hearing that every time her brittles want to shed, they go into the humid hide box makes me think like, 
they probably like that and i should probably get some you know yeah i mean that's some that's interesting because that's something that we have we've taken out of our husbandry yeah and i feel like back in the day it was more of a thing yeah people look at it as kind of a newbie thing right now to have a humid hide box but reality of it is we probably at least for some species it's something we probably should have yeah, but I guess it's not as straightforward with bread lie because you think, I mean, center of Australia, or, I mean, what's the humidity like where they're from exactly? I guess I don't know. Um, it's it's relatively dry over there. Um, there are semi-permanent water sources to permanent water sources. And uh, just recently, I've been, uh, I look through uh, pictures of wild brittles quite often. And a buddy of mine uh, from Scotland posted up a video of uh, some rangers in I think it was Kings Canyon or Trafina Gorge or somewhere like that. And it's uh, a bird eating, drinking some water in an area they put up a trail cam. And a brittles came out of the water and ate the bird. <laughs> so I've also seen pictures of uh, a brittles eating a wild duck in the water. And then recently uh, when they had that big heat wave go through Australia, I saw a video of a brittles sitting in a pool of water to cool off. Wow. So. It, I actually think they might, they might swim a lot in nature. It's just something I've really just thought about in like the last maybe month or so. Yeah, I think I think often we all think about where certain animals are from without necessarily taking in their behaviors, and maybe that that's you, something to think about. That and it's something you don't really think about as far as microclimates go because it bredles um they're not a desert species per se you know not in the same way that say a western diamondback rattlesnake is or a gila monster they basically when you're driving through the mineral the middle of australia it will be flat dry dusty shrubland and then you'll hit a a dry riverbed or a gorge or something like that and all of a sudden just straight down that riverbed is like a forest with a lot of vines, a lot of branches, and the canyons, um, the shaded areas of the canyons, I have a picture that I took when I was there where the top of the canyon was completely arid. There was no plant life at all. And then you get into the bottom of the canyon, and it's full of cycads. It's full of eucalyptus trees. It's full of ferns. So literally, a brettles is like a... Uh, it's like a forest animal that just got stuck in an area that keeps getting more and more arid. Because mm. Morelia and carpets in general, they're very much forest animals. They need that to survive. They're not like a blue-tongued skink or like a, a dwarf monitor or a bearded dragon. They have to have uh, at least semi-permanent water sources and areas to hide, areas to climb. So they need birds, mammals, trees, and water. So if you don't have those, you have no carpet pythons. So what do you do in captivity to, I mean, obviously there's only so much you could do, but what are you doing to provide some of those things? Um, I mean, really, I just feed them whenever they need to be fed. So right. um, I do give them, like I said, I'm using four by two by two cages right now, but I'm really wanting to upgrade that a little bit so they can have more room to climb. Because, you know, when I first was getting into brittles, I bought a couple of adults that were, uh, they were fat and overfed, so they never climbed much. So I just thought that was normal. And now that I've got ones that I'm raising from babies that are, in in my opinion, much better shape, they're not fed anywhere near as much, and they're so much more active than those fat adults that I first got, you know, I, I don't even know how long I've been keeping brittles now at this point, maybe seven years, so 
is there any, you know, like feeding schedule that is run of the mill right now or is that best practice? Um, so what I do with uh, my females is I only feed them like once a month or so. And then in the wintertime, I go like I give them a pretty significant cool down period um, in the wintertime at night. So I don't feed. Usually my last meals are in uh, like right before the beginning of October. And then I start cooling down like a lot um, early November. So they don't eat there. And then they eat maybe one really big meal um, in the middle of January. And then it's kind of sparing. Like I just fed uh, two of my adult females last night. I have one girl that I'm thinking is going to, she's starting the process of having a prelay, I think. So hopefully sometime in the next, I don't know, three, four weeks, she sheds. But I fed the other, I'm trying three females this year. Uh, it'll be my biggest, uh, my biggest year for breeding brittles so far. And they're pretty unique. I mean, as far as Morelia go as, I mean, obviously you're pairing them up in the spring or. Yeah. Um, I am pairing them up. Uh, well, I, I usually when I cool things down, I keep them together the entire time, but I don't see any breeding activity at all. Typically until I have uh, fed my females one big meal during. Um, so like maybe around Christmas time, I will let the temperatures warm back up. And then early January, I'll give them a mouse. And then a few weeks after that, once their digestive system is kind of up and running again, I'll hit them with a huge meal. Hmm. And then after they have that huge meal, they shed. And then with that shed, that seems to be the thing that really triggers the males to uh, want to breed with them. So maybe the pheromones start coming out. And but, be between, I mean all the people that are working with bread lie. I know this had to have been some type of puzzle that was solved. I mean, wasn't as straightforward as you just explained it. So, I mean, how did you first figure it out? Cause now it seems like you've got it so down, but I mean, how um, did you get to that point? So when I first tried brettles, I got like, you know, you bring in an adult male and an adult female that aren't acclimated to your room at all. And I looked at their wild temperatures, which is a terrible idea with the species, because I saw that, okay, daytime 60, nighttime's 40, and I did that. So, and they survived. So I would like, I would literally have them in a container and put them outside during the day so they could get down to 60. And then I would, sometimes I'd leave them overnight if it was down to the 40s. And I did, uh, I got both of them sick, but not so sick that they died. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, that's for a python, that's amazing. Can you imagine doing something yeah. like that to a ball python or a jungle carpet python? So I was, I was stupid. Uh, those, that first, you know, I wouldn't even call it an attempt because that was just completely botching and that was, a, that was a bad deal. So do they, do they need a warm up during that cooling period? I mean, is that essential? Yes, they need to be warm during the day. You need to let them uh, get a couple. Usually what I'll do is I'll let the lights turn on for about eight hours during the day in the wintertime just to whatever. I use light bulbs and I use radiant heat panels. So the radiant heat panels will be set to like 88. And the light bulb just turns on. Hmm. So, you know, they can probably get up to about 95. Not that they really hang out at 95 for more than a split second. But sometimes you'll kind of see them uh, kind of huddled around the circle where the light bulb is. But they're never directly under it unless they're really just 
beginning to warm up. But um, I would say I had some conversations with uh, with Nick Mutton uh, when I was really trying to breed some stuff. And then I would also listen to uh, some episodes of uh, NPR with some of the Diamond Python guys. So I learned a lot from the Diamond Python guys. Um, so my first successful clutch was uh, about three or four years ago. And that was, I kind of had to come up with my own method because I live in uh, North Georgia versus some of these other guys that live uh, like you up north where it's colder and it's easier for you to actually get a room down to 55 or 60. It's mm -hmm. actually kind of a trick for me to do it down here. So I adopted my uh, container locking way, but did it the right way where I would literally take them out of their container or their cage at night, uh, lock them in these containers and then put them up against a window that was, uh, depending on how cold it was at night, would be either slightly cracked or sometimes I just put them on the, because it's a, in a basement, a cement floor, which can get down to, uh, you know, the mid fifties. So no, I would do that not. and then literally take them back during the daytime. Mm. So it's it's not something that has to be exact, but it definitely shouldn't be forty degrees. Um, I mean, I brought them down to forty degrees. Um, okay. It doesn't hurt them as long as they can warm back up. Okay. Uh, I temp gun the lowest I think I've ever temp gun doing that method was forty five, and that was a mistake. Um, I basically the weatherman thought the weather was going to get a certain, you know, he didn't think it was going to get that cold, but then something happened. It just got really cold for like uh, a couple hours before the sun came up. So I went downstairs and was like, oh my gosh, these, these things are way too cold. But I mean, they were, they were fine. I got eggs that year. Wow. So, I mean, I know most people are probably pretty nervous about putting their Python down that much. Um, have you had besides that first year, I mean, any ill effects? Um, I mean, I had a little bit of hiccups that first year, but, uh, you know, not really. Um, I got my stuff pretty cold this year and I've had no issues at all. Other than losing the one female to the uh, the spinal the spinal tumor, which had nothing to do with temperatures at all. Yeah, and what's the the general uh, breeding age and size? Um, if it depends on who you ask, I have never been able to get a female less than five years old to breed. Um, I have gotten a two and a half year old male to breed. Um, Nick Mutton told me that three and a half for both is kind of what he's noticed like he can't get a male to breed at three and a half or a female to breed at less than three and a half my buddy ralph polinski has gotten a pair to breed at two and a half and i know some people um especially with some of these more well-established lines i think can get a male to breed at 18 months i have not done that personally though but i've definitely seen people having success with that or at least breeding with that i don't know if they've ever have they ever gotten a uh, an actual clutch from a young male like that so as far as the uh the females go is there a typical um time as far as putting it together that ovulation all that happens um seems to be a little bit different with it depends on the individual female like i said um right now i think i saw an ovulation a couple of weeks ago which would put her having eggs maybe uh end of april but my hypo girl which i bred last year uh i got eggs on the fourth of july <laughs> so there's kind of a there's a little bit of a spectrum there my first uh the big stonewash girl that uh that died that i was telling you about she would typically lay eggs uh around the last week of april maybe first week of may so she was no i would get clutches of bread light hatching when a lot of people were getting 
eggs on the ground. So that was kind of a kind of a cool thing for a lot of my females is they would breed way earlier than a lot of people's would. You know, I think Austin Warwick is also a guy that's getting stuff in. I want to say like late June is kind of what I've seen on his end, but I I guess it kind of, um, as far as your climate goes, I mean, you're talking about the other bread lie guys are all the way up there and like Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas. So he and I are like the only guys really doing this in the South. Really. There's a couple other guys, but, uh, yeah, a lot of those guys like Nick's up in Washington, Ralph Polinsky, a good friend of mine. Uh, he's up in Chicago, you know, there's Owen, he's over in Pennsylvania by you where it's easier to get things cold with me. I cannot guarantee that I'm going to have cold weather in January. You know, this year I had blue tongue skinks come out of brumation because it was like 75 degrees on Christmas. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, even here in the Northeast, it was super mild of a winter. Yeah. Uh, a, a warm up on Christmas seems to be something that consistently happens down here. So I always try to fight that a little bit and just start cooling things down uh, when nights start getting into the 50s, which is usually in you know late October to early November. Does does having the mail in there during that whole cool down period? I mean, does that help you at least not miss you know your window of opportunity with them? Because you because like say a random spike of temperature happens and maybe the females trigger to do something. I mean, does it just does it just up your possibilities having the male in there that whole time? Uh, probably not. Like I said, I think the biggest uh, trigger is um, the shed. Like there's definitely you need to get them cold. Uh, maybe not as cold as I get them. I think I do a little bit overkill, but what I do works, so I'm not going to really change it. But I really think the uh, the pre-winter or the post-winter shed is what really triggers the males to want to breed because I've never seen them breed if that didn't happen. Okay, yeah, because I mean, I would, I mean, with colubrids, you may have an off day where it's too warm, and mm-hmm. then you see like an animal shed or something, and then you're all nervous that you know maybe you might miss it. Process- yeah, maybe a process is happening that you don't want to happen, type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I had that with my. Uh, this is the first year I've tried to breed uh, blue tongue skinks, which has really been my focus more this year. Mm. And like I said, it, it, we had that warm spike um, around Christmas time for like a week and a half or so. And the animals that I originally had at like 54 to 52 degrees suddenly were at like the mid 60s. And they're like, like looking around like, dude, we're ready to go. So, yeah. Re- remind me to talk about blue tongue skinks later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do but- that. Um, the, the females forget what I was going to say, but the, um, the females, can they breed every single year? Um, probably I don't, I kind of want to do, um, I want to get a group big enough that I can, and this is kind of with all species I'm working with where I can have like, say I have like blue team, red team and purple team where like this year blue team goes and then the cycle starts and red team, purple team and kind of keeps going. So I'm not breeding things year in and year out. You know, right now I've got, I've bred two years in a row a couple of times. Um, I don't think I'd breed three years in a row. Hmm. And to tell you the truth, two years in a row is kind of stressful depending on the animal. That kind of is a general rule for pythons, you know, as a whole. So do you see any difference in your females? I mean, even just after one clutch, I mean, are they pretty affected? Um, I mean, after the legs, that looks like they look like a deflated balloon, but uh, you can usually get them to bounce back uh, relatively quickly. Um, I didn't really notice a difference in clutch size at all. 
like I said, my first when um, originally I was only breeding my big stonewash girl because she was the only one old enough. So I would be getting usually I I consistently had 19 babies hatch out of her litters. And last year I I gave her a year off and let a hypo girl go. And I had, uh, I believe, 16 eggs and 13 of them hatched. Mm. So I don't know. We'll see this year with the hypo girl. Uh, if she even wants to go again, she's like, she's so late compared to what I'm used to that it's, you know, I don't even know if she's going to breed yet. Hmm. So do you have, do you have any other, do you have like a protocol for when a female does look rough after they, they lay eggs? I mean, do you put up the feed frequency? Um, I probably would. Yeah. Like I usually try to feed monthly, which seems to work relatively well with an adult female um i feed juveniles and babies a lot more of course um but yeah yeah i might give them say a bigger meal or maybe give them a couple more meals after the warm-up but it seems to i i wouldn't breed three years in a row for that reason because they might be a little bit skinnier that second time around yeah and is it um with with bread in particular as far as meals go, I mean, I know that they're a bigger Morelia, but what is an appropriately sized meal? I mean, for a big female, uh, big female, I usually do uh, a medium to a large rat. Um, I've considered going over to guinea pigs or rabbits that were really small because I feel like they have less fat. But my girlfriend has told me that she would be very upset with me if I fed uh, guinea pigs or rabbits. So I think I'm going to stick to rats. <laughs> and and seeing them eat birds, I mean, does that give you any? You know, does that make you yeah, want to yeah. feed uh, something else? Um, I mean, quail are pretty easy to get a hold of, and I have fed chicks. Um, chicks are pretty cheap where I'm at. Uh, North Georgia is the chicken capital of the world, so they just have no idea what to do with all these male <laughs> egg-laying chickens. So they're like 25 cents a pop. So I've definitely done that before. And uh, I kind of think I should start feeding a little more bird stuff because i think that's a more natural diet i've only ever seen a picture of them eating birds not to say they don't eat because there's not a lot of pictures of wild bread lie but of the three the two or three pictures i've seen them eating something in the wild it one time was a duck the other time was like a magpie thing mm. so and i mean is it a species that is readily i mean obviously you said it's not i guess probably not seen that much if there's not as many pictures but are they studied um, I think Richard Shine did a little bit of work with them, and then uh, Graham Gow was the guy that just first uh, described them as being a separate species in the uh, early 80s. I believe it was 1981, but I don't remember off the top of my head. I used to know all that stuff, but I've kind of forgotten right now. No, it's all good. So where, as far as um, taxonomy goes, they were, were they once a carpet python, or how does that work? Um, I don't think anybody really went down there to look. I think scientists or at least ecologists knew that there was some form of a carpet python-like animal in uh, the area around Alice Springs, but I don't think anybody even formally – I think it was just a, a footnote before Graham Gow actually came down and did scale counts and did uh, kind of look over the body structure and things like that and said, hey, these are actually pretty distinct. And then uh, the – I want to say early 20-teens – uh, group did a, a full-on phylogeny of uh, all pythons and boas and found out that, uh, yes, they are closely related to carpet pythons, but they're still uh, divergent by about 10 to 14 million years. 
Oh, that's so they, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Which actually kind of adds up for right around the time Australia starts uh, becoming hotter and drier. Mm. So they kind of got stuck there. And actually quite a few other animals uh, got stuck there. Mm. So... I feel like, yeah, that time was like the Morelia apocalypse of taxonomy mm-hmm. when scrubs were taken out and bolins and everything was separated. And then, I mean, is it is it completely incorrect to call it a carpet python, to call bread lie carpet pythons? So it is incorrect to call them Morelia spilota bread lie. I don't care if you call I actually think Centralian carpet pythons a pretty cool name. That and... Uh, you know, I think if you can call something like, say, a Moluccan scrub python, a Moluccan scrub python, you should be able to call a Brettles python a Centralian carpet. You just need to know there is a species distinction, which is something, you know, most of the hobby understands, but there are a few government offices in Australia that will call them Morelia spilota breadlie, which causes a lot of issues talking to some of the Australian keepers who will, like, pull up. When I'm trying to tell them evidence of like, hey, this is scientific papers right here, they're like, well, my government office where somebody who gets paid minimum wage to write this paper <laughs> says they're not a species. So, you know, there there is a little bit of confusion on the Australian side just because some government people say that they're a spilota. But, you know, all the Australians that actually are in the know and uh, – are into ecology and biology, they'll all say like, yeah, yeah, they're a separate species. And then I feel like, I mean, people may be confused at the fact that you hear them called so many different things, whether it's Brettles, Breadlie, Centralian. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all right, right? Um, as long as you don't call them bread eye pythons, which is something <laughs> I've heard a lot of people call them. And, uh, I've actually been told by Scott Iper that it is, should be pronounced Bradley, hmm. just based on how the nomenclature and taxonomy works. So technically, we should be calling them Bradley pythons or John Brettles pythons. But... So I guess we, we would have to change the way we talk about a lot of species then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I do kind of want to start trying to say it the right way, and I was going to try it out, but it Bradley sounds kind of weird. <laughs> So it just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't no, go no. right now. I've almost trained myself to say leucistic instead of leucistic, but there, there's just certain things that just sound so weird to say that it just doesn't feel right, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and anything in hobbyist herpticulture takes at least like five years to infiltrate, whether it's a yeah, yeah, Python, Arian Jaya, it's still happening. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if Bradley is ever going to catch on. It, it probably doesn't matter because you know what we're talking about. Yeah, I think um, I think that's probably one of the the biggest benefits you guys have as far as if you're into bread lie or breadly, um, is the fact <laughs> that they're so different and kind of when you do breed them to other carpet pythons, I feel like you can kind of tell. I I think you can kind of tell. Um, I've seen high percentage brettles crosses that do look kind of similar, but to me. Um, the thin stripes kind of start going away and the color's never quite right. And uh, a big thing I've noticed, a lot of people want to make um, hypobrettles jags mm. because they see pictures of a one to two-year-old. And whenever that happens in Australia, somebody just loses their mind and everybody shares a picture like, oh, look how red this little hypobrettles jag is. And you never see a picture of a three-year-old. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is they kind of turn like a khaki yellow color. 
hmm. with age because you got to think carpet genetics versus brittle genetics. Carpet genetics say you were born red, and then as you get older, you turn those red colors yellow. And with you add brittles to the equation, you give them more yellow. Or you turn them more red color. You give them more red pigment to turn yellow. So and so so that like it seems like we see these bread like crosses, and some of them are almost like electric green ish. Like they have yes, a they, undertone of that. Yeah, they definitely have some really cool colors. Uh, Don Patterson uh, sent me some uh, stonewash brettles jags to help him move down here and they don't look anything like you'd expect a brettles jag to look like yeah but they're like the craziest pastel yellow thing you will ever see in your life <laughs> i feel disgusting for having them but i mean <laughs> i have to admit they're kind of cool <laughs> yeah i was like it's it's so hard to to know where where you lie as far as uh beautiful animals are beautiful animals but you yeah. want to see things pure and i mean where where do you lie, Elise, I guess, in your opinion? I, I have a weird opinion on that, which is I wish people were more creative with the way they hybridized, if that makes sense. Like everybody that wants to hybridize Morelia wants to put a jag to it. But for some reason, nobody ever does anything else. Like who's trying to make a high percentage zebra diamond python? Or who's trying to make a high percentage diamond zebra python or something like that? Like, I think the Morelia community is so obsessed with jags, which is so strange to me because there's so many other traits. But, I mean, I'm, I'm going to admit that the albino bread lie are pretty. I don't think it would be a good thing for them to really become super popular in the States just because you do eventually get like 88% brettles hybrids that you can't tell the difference of. And I don't think that would be a good thing. But yeah, so I guess is it is it more is it more touchy here just because the doors are closed? Um, see, I, I don't know. I feel like the Morelia community in general is moving more towards uh, look. I think I feel like we're moving away from more stuff, which has its benefits and disadvantages, I guess. So I don't really know. I kind of just lost my train of thought with that, but. <laughs> No, you're good. Uh, so mutations obviously do exist now, I guess, in bread lies. So how did that come to be? Obviously, you started out with normals. I mean, were there were there morphs when you first got into it? Um, yeah, stone washes were um, they were a thing, but they were something that nobody had. Um, stripes have been around. Actually, the first ever clutch of brettles produced in the USA was in uh, ninety. I believe it was ninety eight. Um, Casey Lasik accidentally hatched out some genetic stripes. So genetic stripes in the U.S. are as old as bread lie in the U.S. And then there's the hypo, which the hypo is a little more complicated because it appears to be about like four or five different genes playing together to make uh, a hypo brittles. But the, the stone washes, I tracked down. So first guy to produce stone washes was uh, BHB, Brian Barczyk. And then, since it's a recessive trait, that means there were a bunch of poshets floating around. Brian just happened to hatch them out first in 09. And then some other people randomly started hatching them out. There was a guy, uh, his name is Nick Stark, which is where Nick Mutton eventually got his animals from. And then there was a guy uh, who had a pair of genetic stripes that actually ended up being a pair of genetic stripes, Hetstonewash. 
and hatched out these weird looking genetic stripes that nobody knew what they were until recently we found out like oh turns out a genetic stripe stonewash is like this weird barbed wirey looking thing well i need to try to find that i've definitely never seen that um i'll probably produce some this year so I feel like we need to have a cool morph combo name with those. I'm thinking barbed wires would be kind of cool or mosaics or something like that. But yeah, um, whatever, whatever beats the Wookiee ball Python. Ugh. no, 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 man. The, the banana mystic potion has to be the worst combo <laughs> name ever. I mean, it, it's easy though. I feel like in, it's going to be easier in Morelia to have cool names because uh, there's not a hundred others yeah exactly but um kind of when nick was trying to prove out the stonewash thing i knew it existed i knew he had proved it out it was genetic um but i had also been really really heavily researching stuff so i saw that i remember the videos that brian had done like six years before uh nick had finally figured out it was a recessive trait so i called around and was asking like hey do you know what happened to these animals because i remember um in 2009 at daytona there were a couple of hypo for sale, and I never forgot that. And of course, I was I was too young to buy. I was in ninth grade in two thousand nine, <laughs> so you know I couldn't afford anything, and I wasn't allowed to keep stuff. But I remember seeing on the table hypo So I always wondered where those animals went. Do so I eventually a tag on it? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't remember at all. I actually didn't see one. Uh, they had already sold by the time uh, I had gotten to the show. So I, ca- I made some phone calls, and I tracked down probably the last female stonewash from that original 2009 clutch. Wow. And I bought her, and I brought her in. Uh, I had to slim her down a lot. I fed her nothing but chicks for months because she was so fat. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was really, really proud of that because at the time, there were probably like 12 or 13 stonewashes in existence. And this this kid from Georgia just happened to come out of nowhere and find one. But that was months of work. I had to make a lot of phone calls to uh, eventually track her down. Do you mind if I ask how much you paid for that first female? I do mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I I paid about two and a half thousand dollars for that snake. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Yeah. So I no, I, I had I had a pretty decent job. Um, at that point, I was, uh, I want to say I was a junior in college. So that was probably more money than I should have spent. But we all the same time, I knew she existed. And I, I mean, it paid out great. I made uh, I made all that money back and then some over the last couple of years with her. But uh, that's yeah. a big chance to take. I mean, as oh, that was a huge chance to take. Like, I look back on some of the things I've I bought back in those days and I was, I'm still crazy, but. You know, I had no like confidence to back up that I could even do that. I don't really know why I thought I should do that. <laughs> and I mean, this, I'm sure there's, there weren't many people producing bread lie in the States. I mean, how do, how do we get all these morphs out of such a small gene pool? I, I think the small gene pool is how we ended up with the stripe and the stonewash. Um, I actually think at this point, because Stonewash actually popped up in the sec- a second time in an unrelated bloodline from Casey Lasik's line. So my original female was a Casey Lasik bloodline uh, Brettles Python, and it popped up in the uh, the hypos actually. 
and my first ever clutch of brettles pythons happened to also be a first ever uh <laughs> it was a first uh, world's first uh, gene combo where <laughs> i mixed a male hypo and the female stonewash and out of 19 babies 11 of them were visual stonewash wow so yeah i, I had some phone calls with uh, nick mutton at that point and uh <laughs> so that was that was really cool but at the same time i kind of wish that i don't want to say i wish it didn't happen but it, it was very uh very interesting when when it all did do you think that you were prepared to handle I mean, all of that, because I mean, it's it's hard, especially um, when you're just in the snake market, like you don't know exactly how everything works and how like and there's competition and other things that happen. I mean, like, were you just prepared as a whole? Um, I ended up holding back almost that entire clutch. I still have most of them. So, you know, in my basement right now, I just yesterday I fed uh, five uh, genetics or uh, five uh, stonewash hypo brittles females that should be ready to go in a couple of years, but I'm not going to breed them all at once. Of course. Um, I don't really know if I was prepared for that. I don't think anybody could have been cause it was so, it's such a long shot cause you breed two snakes together and you're like, okay, in five years, I'm going to make these. And literally the first baby to come <laughs> out of the egg was something you thought you weren't going to see for like five or six years. Yeah. And are they, so they're, they're all recessive hypo stonewash and genetic stripe. Okay, so genetic stripe is definitely recessive. I actually think stonewash is a really mild um, incomplete dominant trait. Because even if some guys will say, like, okay, in the hypos you can tell. I actually think you can tell in the Lasix. And then I've actually bred a, uh, a high orange European line male from the A4s line, the A4s line, to a Lasix line female. And I can tell with those babies that they're head stonewash. So they're a little bit brighter. Um, they can have a couple of other little markers, especially around the neck. They just look a little bit prettier. So I've kind of accidentally ended up with a bunch of headstone wash because when I was buying bread light, I had a look that I really liked. And that look just happened to coincide with animals that were headstone wash. <laughs> oh, that's so that's awesome. The hypo, um, the hypo is a little more complicated. I think it's uh what we figured out is it's probably just a handful of genes playing together to make the look. So sometimes when you hatch out some, they'll be like amazing as babies and darken up. And some of them might not be quite as pretty. And this is when you breed, say, a hypo male to a normal female. Mm. You'll have like you'll hatch out some with babies and you're like, oh my god, these are gonna be the prettiest brittles to ever exist, and then they brown out. But some of these ones that are okay looking are okay looking their entire life. Like they never get any worse, and they just keep gaining orange and gaining orange and gaining orange. So they look amazing. Um, so there's, there's a very large, or very, there's a spectrum when you breed a hypo to a normal, it's not like a clear incomplete dominant thing. Gotcha. So even if you're, you're, there's going to be some variation there, even if you have all hats, I mean, there's going to be nice hats and not like some that you can tell some you can't tell. Um, uh, kind of. Right now, what we've kind of come up with for the hypos is to base it off of percentage, at least for babies. So when you breed, say, a normal, like just a pure straight Lasik to a full-blooded hypo, you call them 50% hypo blood, which it works well when they're babies, but as they get older and, say, some of them start to brown out, you can kind of just say, okay, this is just a normal that you know, has some extra hypo blood in it. And then 
maybe one in the clutch is going to be amazing. Like it might actually be prettier than a quote unquote full blooded hypo. So I think just selective breeding, just taking say those ones and then breeding them back to hypos. I don't know if I would ever call an animal that was less than 50% hypo blood a hypo just from what I've seen with, I just think that spectrum is going to get larger and larger and larger every time you breed uh, a hypo to a normal. Damn. So this is more confusing than I thought. Yeah. It's, it's pretty confusing. <laughs> it really is. Uh, I wish it was more clear cut because that would just make things so much easier. If there was a super hypo and, you know, a single gene hypo and everything else was normal. I would love it. If it worked that way. Cause it would make my life so much easier. <laughs> right. And I, and I bet, I mean, it does probably play in the back of your mind, like, Hey, some of these brown out and then it's kind of up to the person who's selling it to label it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've actually let go. Um, you know, there's some people out there. I'll tell them like, Hey, the dad of this was a hypo, but I don't think this one is. And I don't really sell them for anything more than, you know, a normal bread lie. And a couple of those original stone washes I hatched out that were hypo stone washed. Um, I actually sold them for, you know, what the price of like a low end stone wash would be because none of them were very like washed out. If that makes sense. Like sometimes you'll see some stone washes where like half the body is like just this crazy, like scrubbed down look. And then sometimes with stone washes, you'll see it where there's like a couple of white spots behind the back of the head and nothing else. Right. So, so, I mean, it's, it's difficult. Does it get even more difficult when you add that stone wash in there to tell the difference between hypo, not hypo? Um, maybe a little bit. Stone wash does act a little bit. It's basically a low grade piebald, if that makes sense. So if you see a piebald ball python, even for one that just has like a little white patch, it's going to have a completely different color and pattern. Mm. And it's kind of that way with the stone wash too, where in my opinion, stone washes are a lot more of like a salmon or a pinkish color. They're a lot brighter than a normal bread lie would be. So really when you get like some animals that inherited a bunch of the hypo genes and then you add the stonewash gene onto it, you get some really, really pretty animals. Like some of the, some of the most intense orangish salmon-y pink bread lie ever, uh, I think are going to come out of some selective breeding of the hypo stonewash stuff. That's awesome. And now yeah. I feel like I feel like the genetic stripe is kind of the opposite. I feel like they tend to be dark, at least from what I saw. Um, for the most part, they are. There's a couple of pretty ones. Believe it or not, if you have a genetic stripe that is het stonewash, it's going to be significantly prettier than mm. just a straight genetic stripe. Um, you have to kind of think about it like the prettiest part of a bread lie is going to be the, the back. And if you put a stripe that goes right through the dorsal or right through the back, you kind of take away every part of it that's going to be pretty. Mm. So that's so why I think genetic stripes are a little bit darker. And now, I mean, bread light typically are red in the front and then black tail, correct? Um, that is a, like that's blacker. a very common trend with the species. Not all of them do it. Um, I've actually been breeding away from the animals that do that, which is funny because there's so many people that say, oh, I love that black tail. And I'm actually trying to get away from it with my own stuff. Um, the one I caught in the wild uh, did not have – it was the same color all the way down. So there was no black on its tail at all. And does that really exist in the, in the hobby in the United States? Um, it does. It does. I've got plenty of animals like that. Um, there's kind of a, a spectrum. And like I said, I'm selecting for it. So whenever I pick out a baby bread lay, so, you know, 
if somebody's hatching out a clutch that I wanted, maybe not so much now, I've kind of slowed down on buying stuff. But like when Austin Warwick produced his, uh, he bred a Paul Harris line female to an Afors line male. I was like first in line to get stuff that wasn't his or wasn't his holdbacks. So um, when I looked at it, I looked at kind of how dark it looked like they were going down uh, the tail along with uh, blushing, kind of what I thought was going to be pretty. Because when Breadlay are born, Breadlay are born as these like brownish gray worms. They're not really uh, the same color as an adult at all, which is incredibly frustrating. Classic Morelia, though. I mean, yeah. Well, it's, it's like the opposite because with the pop ones, they're born orange and then they turn mm. brown with age. True. So. It's it's kind of annoying like that. Like I kind of wish that they were the same color, but at the same time, it's kind of part of the fun to figure out uh, what's going to be pretty, what's kind of going to be more average. I don't want to say one's ugly because that's not a good way to put it, but I definitely have a look that I want to try to keep in my collection for future breeding stock. And is there anything in particular that you can tell is going to turn dark or black or turn, going to turn red? Um. I kind of look for the babies that are more of a tannish color for my holdbacks. Um, I, you can kind of always, you can tell the black outlines on the white stripes uh, pretty much from birth. Um, they do gear, they do uh, gain black outlines with age. Like even the hypos, an adult hypo is going to have a little bit of black on the back half or so. But I try to look for the ones that don't have as much of that. So somebody that wants to have one with a jet black tail should probably look for more of that. Right. And now how long does it really take you to see that, that color change? Um, they really start lightening up at about a year old. Um, I was really disappointed with a couple of uh, these hypo stone washes I hatched out because I hatched out some babies that were like, you were going to be the prettiest bread lie that has ever existed. <laughs> and they kind of browned out but their sisters ended up being what I think is one of the prettiest red light to ever exist. And I wasn't so sure about her. So how does so, that change what you do in the future? Um, Besides hold makes, everything back. I mean, I can kind of, I'm, the more I've been able to hold stuff back, the more I've been able to learn the hypo definitely complicates it. So, um, I don't know. I've, I feel like I've gotten a lot better at picking holdbacks. And right now, the animals that I've been able to pick out from people have turned out pretty nice. So I'm going to breed those together. Um, I'm not really one of those guys that cares about like, oh, I'm going to maintain pure LASIK. I'm going to maintain pure Afors. I like to get pretty stuff from all the lineages and mix them together for genetic diversity. And then also, like say, the Afors have a really, really nice orange. The Hypos have reduced black. If you mix them together, sometimes you get some animals that have reduced black and super high orange, and they look amazing. In my opinion, some of the best hypo brittles are fifty percent Afors and fifty percent hypo. And is there and where do the uh, does each morph? Does it originate from a particular line? Um, Stonewash popped up in Casey Lasik's line, and it popped up in the hypo. So it popped up in two, which makes me think that like Stonewash is not super extreme. It would not surprise me if you see like a small percentage of Stonewash bread lie in the wild. Uh, genetic stripes popped up in Lasix line, and then the hypos are kind of their own bloodline in the U.S. and in Europe. And do you know how they originally got into the country, or are they um, actually separate lines, or is it really just stem from a few animals, like the same couple animals? Um, I know that Lasix animals came from uh, 
a group of, I think it was 3.2 siblings that he imported from Sweden. I know that uh, Harris's line is a separate line. Paul Harris had a separate line from Germany, which I don't quite know the origins of those. Uh, sometimes Europe, whenever they have something smuggled in, they'll just give it to the next guy with... Like, okay, these came in illegally. You're going to jail, and we're going to give your animals to somebody just because we don't want to take care of them. That's kind of the origin of a lot of Australian animals in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, Henrik Afors in Sweden has a distinct bloodline. The Hyphos are a distinct bloodline. And then there's the Paul Harrison – or the, uh, the Doug Price animals, which there's debate as to whether or not they are actually different from Casey Lasik's animals. Doug Price is a guy based out of California. And they got their animals at roughly the same time. I tend to think that they're the same bloodline. They do look a little bit different. I think Doug Price animals are typically a little bit prettier. And I don't think a genetic stripe has popped out of it. But, I mean, if you have pos heads floating around, it's very possible to not have that gene in a pair of animals, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so luckily, I mean, it seems like they are seriously distinct lines. Right, right. So in a couple of years, I have a project I'm actually really excited about. I don't think anybody but me is going to care about it. Um, I'm going to take some of these Harris to Afors animals that um, Austin Warwick produced, and I'm going to breed it to a, uh, a visual stonewashed um, hypo to LASIK that might not be necessarily hypo. So I'm going to make animals with four unrelated grandparents. And I'm really excited to make those, but nobody's going to care but me. <laughs> No, but that that's awesome. I think that yeah. anytime we can we can get towards genetic diversity, I mean, I think that can't hurt. Yeah, and it would actually be the first time in the U.S. they've ever been born. You've ever had bread lead born that did have four unrelated grandparents, or at least I don't think bread lead had much genetic diversity at all to begin with. But just the idea of these probably have four grandparents that aren't, you know, exact like first cousins is kind of kind of cool to me. So, yeah, I would be a year or two away from that. That's awesome. But I, I, I always thought it was funny that, you know, this line, that line, when you're really just inbreeding, I don't know if that's positive or not. No, no. I've, I've compared a lot of uh, locality Morelia, a lot of locality animals in general. Um, I don't call it a family tree. I call it a family ladder because it's just <laughs> sibling, 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 sibling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that never I, – I, think it never works out in the long run but no um it works out okay with like an insular species that kind of got they basically got built-in resistance to inbreeding depression because they've been so inbred yeah exactly but you take like like say a coastal carpet python or an animal from a population with a lot of genetic diversity and all of a sudden you just make a family ladder for five generations i think you're going to have a problem I really think that uh, I really think the Morelia community is going to have to figure some stuff out in a couple of years, just because I don't see it being good for the animals for us to just keep. I don't like the idea of um, breeding animals together solely to preserve a proper noun. You know what I mean? Like I want to keep animals that are from this guy because they're from this guy, and if we're going to lose this bloodline, if we outcross it. But my thoughts are like you're going to lose that bloodline if you keep breeding them together anyway. Right. Or you're just, yeah, you're just going to lose fecundity or you're going to lose. Yeah, exactly. You're going to end up with a bunch of babies with no eyes, but they're all from, you know, Bob Smith line animals from the 80s. But Bob Smith's a man. I mean, exactly. Like, who cares what Bob Smith did? And there's some really guys like, oh, shut up, Casey. You don't know what you're talking about. But I really feel like us 
breeding siblings together for you know seven or eight generations is not good yeah i mean it would tell you i mean like i don't know i don't want to say common sense because that that's not true but it seems like zoos obviously have a big thing as far as reptiles go, even reptiles and all their other animals that they keep a stud book. They make sure that they're doing unrelated pairs, all this Mm -hmm. stuff. Even if they do put related animals together, I heard that they actually don't put them into the breeding program. They'll, you know, donate them somewhere else or just keep them on display and we won't breed them. So it's like, if I would think that they're more educated on the, Mm -hmm. on the topic. So that's why I would kind of venture to say that, they probably have a reason for doing so and maybe we should yeah it's so hard too because you think about like gelatin locality jungles or you know even even stuff in the u.s like uh some of our gila monster bloodlines it's you want to maintain a locality i understand that mm. so that's such a fine line to 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 walk you know? yeah that's we're true. not gonna I get mean... any more we're not gonna get any more gelatin jungle carpet pythons we're not gonna get any more brisbane's most brisbane carpet pythons most likely but at the same time we still risk losing them if we breed siblings together for 12 generations yeah so i think you can't help but to be a hypocrite because yeah, oh, yeah I, totally i want there to be gelatin jungles but i don't want to breed siblings together you can't really have have both i'm sure it's at a certain yeah point. And I'm a total hypocrite because I've, I've got plans for, you know, when you're breeding for, you know, recessive mutations, you have to inbreed. It's just a reality of it. So I'm trying to do uh, genetic stripe visual stone washes this year. There's, there's some inbreeding going on there. But my plan is once I get some animals in there I like, and I might not even decide if I like the double visual stone wash stripe. I might decide to keep like a couple of genetic stripes, but... I will not be breeding those to each other. You know, I'm going to take some of these animals from other bloodlines and putting them in there to make heads. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, take it from the corn snake guys. We've been, yeah. I have animals that have been probably bred back so many different, you know, I have four recessive genes in an animal. Think yeah, about yeah. How, many, how many related <laughs> pairings that took to get there. Yeah, and then, I mean, you almost have the, the benefit in the corn snake world of some of your corn snakes aren't actually pure corn snakes. So there's at least some genetic mm-hmm. diversity from like the yellow rat snake that's in there from five generations ago. How dare you? Mine is pure. And <laughs> to, to even, to even argue about pure corn snakes is kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's silly and it's silly and everything. Uh, like when you get really down to looking at stuff with a microscope, you're it's hard, you know, I, I can, I, I see both sides of it. I guess, and corn snakes, it's a lot easier to get pure stuff. I can't have corn snakes because I'm in Georgia, so I don't really pay attention yeah. to the corn snake market at all. But Yeah, that's uh, – I mean, I understand why you guys have your laws and stuff, but it kind of sucks that you guys can't can't keep corn. Yeah, I'm scared to keep any North American colubrid because I don't actually know the taxonomy enough, and it changes so often. I don't want to realize that <laughs> I'm breaking the law like because some scientist decides that – these animals from Arizona are actually the same species. So, you know, I've heard bad things about DNR in Georgia, uh, catching people with native species. I don't even want to deal with it. Oh, I'm sure. And, but I mean, like bread lie, the whole dropping them down, you know, would work out for you, but I I feel like I, I feel like I probably in another life would have been a colubrid guy. (laughs) 
I'm a cold weather Python guy now. Like I'm fascinated with all the Pythons that you need to keep colder than the standard. Cause I feel like most Pythons do just fine with the ball Python formula. You know, there's a couple species that just don't. And I'm fascinated with almost all the species that just don't work with that formula. So, I mean, off the bat, I'm thinking diamonds and bread light. I mean, are there other, other animals, other pythons that are spring breeding as well as you got to get them dropped down pretty far. So, um, Stimson's pythons are from the same area that brittles are. Um, Woma pythons are from the same area that brittles are actually Woma pythons are out in the desert. So they're in like the crappy, you know, area that bread light don't want to go into because it's too hard to live in. Mm. Um, Bolans, of course, are a cold weather python species. Um, there's a couple of the, uh, I would say a couple of the scrub pythons are probably animals that need to be kept a little bit cooler. Um, and then as far as boas go, there's a lot of boas that kind of follow the exact same formula that a bredles does, you know. I think I could keep Argentine boas with no problem. I think I could breed any Sanzania with no problem. So. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's so unique to, to have that in a Python. And, um, do you, do you have any interest or I haven't really seen people breeding like say Womas in the same way that you would, I see them breeding them more like you would a normal carbon, maybe some slight drops. Um, I don't see anyone putting, bringing them down to like 50 degrees. Do they need that? I don't, I don't know. I don't think like so. I know there's yeah. certain lines of Womas that people are having a much harder time with than other lines. So I kind of wonder if maybe the Womas that people are having problems with um, might be from an area that needs to get colder. But then Womas, you know, their their diet is also completely messed up in captivity compared to what it is in the wild. So there's a lot kind of working against Womas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like people don't have as much of a problem breeding them as they do with uh, taking care of the eggs and getting them to hatch. Yeah. And I, I mean, I see that with blackheads too. I really think that the problem with blackheads and womas, I don't think anything from Australia is hard to breed in captivity. I think you just need to figure out what to do. So blackheads and womas, I think the issue is they're just, the diets are too high in fat. Like you hear stories about blackheads being born with yolks that are so huge they can't even like roll over the right way. That to me just sounds like the mom was fat and she made the yolks too fat. Mm. So you, I think Derek Roddy fed a couple of his nothing but – like one or two of his nothing but fish. The babies came out way better Whoa. than they did being fed rats. Mm. So and Natural snake eaters, right? Black oh, yeah, natural snake eaters. So if, I think if you went over to the Asian market and got you know, some of those freshwater eels they seem to sell Whoa. pretty often – I would love to get blackheads one day. I've really considered it. I just, uh, I've got other stuff that I'm kind of interested in right now before I get into my blackheads. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the, I'm in the same boat. Uh, blackhead yeah. is definitely like one of my dream animals, but, um, for whatever reason it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. I, I tried for a little while. There was a guy that wanted to trade some hypo brettles for, uh, for a, pair of black-headed pythons and he just he reached out to me he messaged me and the second he said like hey man you want these i was like oh yeah i do and he like flipped a switch it was so weird like uh, i'm like oh yeah i'll totally trade those for these and he's like yeah man maybe like one day or something uh, we'll, we'll figure it out I'm like dude you asked me <laughs> you said yes too soon he's like yeah, i said yes like immediately deal. and then <laughs> he like he, he turned like from being like yes we should do this to absolutely not i guess he thought i was gonna try to like talk him down or something 
but I was like, oh yeah, dude, your blackheads look awesome. I'll totally take some. Damn. Well, no one's going to trade me any blackheads for corn snakes anytime soon, but I would totally take them if that was the case. Yeah, I know. I, I still don't quite understand that one. That was, that was one of my weirder like trade offers. <laughs> and Ryan, Ryan in the chat was, uh, Somewhat messing with you, but he said Casey now has locality ball pythons. I do have locality ball pythons. You were I'm a talking, total. Uh, you were talking yeah. about ball pythons just before. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a total hypocrite with that. Uh, I, I got some locality ball pythons in the Southeast Carpet Fest auction. Uh, I'm not gonna lie; like I have no desire to keep a ball python, but if I did, it would be that. And which is exactly why I got them. Every carpet guy, I feel like. <laughs> I've talked to that. I told them I have these. It's like, yeah, put me on a list, man. I want some. <laughs> There's so, something they're like, wrong. They're like the this. reptile snob ball python, which is kind of why yeah. I think it's so. I find it like kind of hilarious. So it's like why the anti ball python ball python. It is. That's what's so cool about them, though. Like I was kind of just giggling to myself as I was driving to the FedEx hub to get them because like this is so stupid, but <laughs> I'm so glad I had these. Like I was so excited about them. Yeah, and do you know the the whole background with with Stephen Tillis and all that? Yeah, yeah, we can uh, we can go into that a little bit with those guys. Yeah. Um, so Stephen Tillis took a trip to Togo about four years ago. Um, he went to an area that is very far outside of the normal collection zone for uh, ball pythons. Ball pythons are all kind of collected in this little valley area uh, around some of the major towns and cities in Togo. But there's an area by the uh, the Zia River and the Volta region that he visited. And he said when he got to that village that he has GPS coordinates for, by the way, which is kind of what makes these cool. Um, there was a guy there that was a snake catcher that had like a six foot two female with a head like a small Burmese python. And she was a really old, scarred up, wild caught animal. And he took one look at that thing and was like, I want to take it. What's gonna? What would it? What would it take for me to get this? And the guy wanted some of his snake tongs. You know, it was like little snake hooks. So he's like, "Oh yeah, sure, take them. I want that female." So he got a that gigantic female and a male that I don't really know if the male was bigger than than uh, normal. But you know, talking to him, I've talked to a couple of guys about these. Um, ball python people used to call animals from the Volta region uh, sub-Saharan, which is a dumb name, but um the volta region animals are rumored to get significantly larger and they have significantly larger heads and this female did now whether or not that is because there is you know selective pressure to become much larger which is entirely possible or if it's just that these animals are so far outside of the normal collection zone of ball pythons that females are just able to get 40 years old and gigantic uh kind of remains to be said um, he did tell me that, you know, he, he did a lot of looking around in that region and he saw ball pythons that looked more or less normal and he saw a couple of animals that looked gigantic. So it's kind of, it's hard to know, but at the same time, if you look at three things can change very quickly in a population and that is size, color, and pattern. It does not take a lot of generation to change any one of those three things. So if there is even a little bit of a selective pressure for a little bit of that population to become larger, some of them are going to start becoming larger. So and why is that in particular? Is there any particular reason why larger individual would survive and all the smaller ones do not? 
um, I don't know, bigger prey. I, I wouldn't be the guy to ask that. I've never been to Togo. And like I said, there's still a distinct possibility that that's all, yeah, that's all bull crap. And this female just happens right. to be 45 years old and got to the point she could eat small rabbits. True, true. I mean, you, you remember those old Volta animals that used to yeah. come in? Yeah, uh, this animal is from the Volta region. He just okay, happens so to it's have the exact same region. Yeah, he happens to have the exact GPS coordinates for where they were collected. So, used to be people would say like, "How do you really know it's a Volta?" I know these are Volta. I know for a fact because I have the GPS coordinates. You can go on Google Maps and see the village that he bought them at and where they were collected right outside of. Yeah, I know they were labeled as like Zio River or something. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's what uh, Stephen Tillis called them, Zio River. Uh, Volta animals used to be called Sub-Saharan because I guess the Volta region is just below the Sahara Desert. But at the same time, Sub-Saharan Africa means anything in Africa below the Sahara Desert, which is like two-thirds of Africa. (laughs) So this this, uh, village is right off the shore of the Zio River in Togo, though, which is a pretty defined area. Yeah, that's super awesome. And you, you just have a pair of them? Yeah, I have a 1.1. So, yeah, I just I think it's a cool novelty project. I'm not going to base my whole collection off of it, but it's still super cool to say I have, like, GPS locality ball pythons that may or may not be this, like, really cool locality giant type. Yeah, snake snobs are... Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the snake snob ball python. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to bring up the fact that Benjamin who is always uh he's always hanging out with us in the in the chat here he said that uh the bread lie that he got from you are feisty and fantastic yeah i did sell benjamin a bread lie a couple a couple months ago yeah he was a really good customer to me so hey man (laughs) yeah it's always it's always funny how uh experienced snake keepers and breeders have a different point of view when it comes to snakes meaning like feisty animals for the most part are negative when you're talking to pet owners when you're talking to someone who is looking to keep an animal for a long period of time or breed an animal i mean it's not a negative trait at all no it means they they eat but really even even mean bread like calm down for the most there's going to be a couple exceptions there's going to be some animals that are just more high strung than others um i have noticed that hypos seem to be more high strung than non-hypos I don't know why that is, but, oh, yeah, I know Christopher, too. Yeah, I sold him a genetic stripe not long ago, and then he bought one of my uh, Hypo to Afors, too, and then I think he has one of my uh, Het Stone Wash that I produced. So, yeah, he's got a pretty good, uh, at least as far as bloodlines and stuff go, he's got a pretty good group going. Yeah, we got we got all the, all the bread lie people coming out, so... Uh... I appreciate you sharing it on your page because obviously uh, everyone's yeah. showing up for you. And yeah, um, I, I shipped that one out too. I'm reading the the chat for the guy saying he has the hypo to Afors coming in. So yeah, it's it's on the way. That's awesome, man. I mean, I'm guessing the uh, it's kind of a similar situation for you where the weather's just starting to break and you're starting to be yeah. able to animals yeah. out. I've been really lucky. The last uh, The last two guys that have wanted me to ship out are very close to me, so... You know, I don't think that those are actually going to even be on an airplane, which is a real plus when it comes to weather. Yeah, and, and Lori was saying that she found her hypos to be more reactive, but her stone wash are the most mellow. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I guess that could be uh, 
that could be a thing. I just I noticed the hypos are so much more high strung. Mm. But yeah, again, Lori, I think we need to talk about how I need to set up my brittle's cages. So yeah, we'll we'll talk in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, man, I look forward to see what people because I think oftentimes breeders aren't seen as people who are looking to upgrade their husbandry all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's going to be something that changes with time. Then I would kind of like to start doing some filming stuff. And when you start filming, you kind of you're always going to have criticism, but you want to have your collection a little bit less easy to be criticized. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, part of part of the changing even on my end is the fact that I know that I do YouTube videos and I want to be mm-hmm. able to show enclosures again without people hating me. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, there is... I know it's not supposed to affect me, but it, it would help my YouTube channel if people didn't dislike what they see in the video. It doesn't help to have things that people dislike. And it's also better for the animals. So Yeah. And I was about to say, like, there's no, there's probably a benefit to the animals too. Yeah. You know, and it gets us back to, you know, the idea of keeping a snake in a drawer versus actually being like a private zookeeper is kind of an interesting shift I almost see happening where you have people that are actually trying to train their animals. You've got people that are actually trying to make their cages better. And you've got guys like Lawrence over in uh, Ireland right now who is really giving his animals, uh, really giving his scrub pythons a lot of options and a lot of enrichment, and it's working for him. You know, that's a group of pythons that's high strung and hard to breed and he's doing a great job. Yeah, I never thought of it from that perspective, private zookeeper. I mean, that is exactly mm-hmm. what it's like. Yeah, that's that's kind of the shift I see going on and I have a relatively small collection. Um and right now I do have an interesting uh you know, I have a deal with Don Patterson in Canada where he sends me some stuff. So I'm able to kind of make money from that, from my own collection. So I can kind of keep investing into my cages and into better new projects for animals as well. So, so does that work as far as uh, he's in Canada, right? So yes. you're, you're basically just importing them and then you're able to keep them and ship them. Um, I usually will. Uh, we we kind of have a little two way street going on for that, but yes, he, produces a lot of uh, like mid-range ball pythons as well as a lot of other really interesting species. Um, he's got a lot of stuff he's trying to breed this year and uh, I hope he does because I'll be able to get some even if he doesn't tell anybody what he's breeding. <laughs> uh, so that that's a really cool uh, partnership I've got. That's He's somebody I just started talking to maybe a year and a half ago and has become one of my best friends in the reptile world. You know, I could call that a guy up right now and we'd have an hour and a half long conversation about nothing. So having somebody with that much experience and uh, interest in the reptile hobby from another country has been really cool for me as far as like a friend and a mentor situation. And he does it full time, right? Yes, he does it full time. I'm uh, like a cheating way to being full time too right now. So (laughs) I kind of do stuff with him and then I do my own stuff. And then uh, I have a couple of other like small little gigs that I use to make money with and I'm trying to do some work with uh, Reptiles Express, which is a local company to me. I'm really good friends with uh, both Mike's that work there, Mike Arnold, as well as Mike, the owner. So I'm kind of, I've got some stuff going on with them right now to try to do some cool things with them in the future. Was that always your goal is to become full-time reptiles? Um, uh, kind of. Yeah. I, I like the more, 
the idea of being a private zookeeper is kind of cool to me. I, I like that term, I think. By any means necessary, however you can make the money, you know, to... Yeah, I mean, I have a biology degree. I helped out a lot with, uh, say, Project Pine Snake and some grad students and stuff like that. I had professors tell me, you have to go to grad school. And I would like to, but I also want to make money, you know? <laughs> I, because not even from like I want to be greedy, just to, I have to make Don't money go in because debt to make yeah. a mediocre salary. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad because obviously it's something the sciences is such an important field. Yeah. And there's too many like biologists who need too much school for way too little money, and you're in a yeah. situation. And I do think you need a lot of education to do it. I was fascinated in a lot of my genetic classes and a lot of my ecology classes. Um, not so much my organic chemistry classes or anything like that. Um, I would have – I still think I might like to go to grad school at one point or at some point just to be able to do a project like that. But at the same time, I don't want to make $18,000 a year for two years. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a hard way to live. Yeah, and I I see so many people hustling out there just to make it work and moving all over the place and like so that's, much power to them to to do that. That's the biggest problem. That's that's a bigger problem to me than the salary is that I don't see there's a way that I could keep animals and do that. I don't see there's a way that I could maintain any kind of you know, be it romantic, family, friends, any kind of relationship at all when to be a biologist at the early levels you have to move like every four months and it's not an easy move where it's like right down the street it's like i need you in nebraska from i don't know october to january and then after that you need to go to washington state and after that i need you down in you know the texas mexico border or whatever that's a it, it's a hard way and it's it's just something i don't think i can do i've got friends that do it yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of like if you, I mean, hell, if you wanted to be full-time in reptiles, you got to make some sacrifices too. They're just different. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't move with reptiles. I mean, you've seen that you, you can, but not at a certain with, point. I, yeah, that's not at a certain point. point. Yeah. Which makes it very difficult is I, I need to get somewhere where I can get at least a good basement so I need to I need to move pretty soon, um, but I need to be careful not to let myself get too big. And this deal with Don has really helped me out, where I can keep a smaller collection, but also get a couple of shipments of you know eight hundred to a thousand dollar ball pythons, which I get a percentage of selling uh, a couple times a year. So if people see something that they're interested in that that Don produces, can they hit you up? Oh yeah, of course. Um, there are a couple of things that. I kind of want to have first dibs on. He posted some amazing uh, Amazon tree boas. Mm. So if he ever lets those go and he's not letting them go just yet, you're going to have to go through me to get them. And I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> but so it's not going to you know, come easy. Yeah, they're not going to come easy because I want them because <laughs> I love orange snakes and he's producing the most like fire engine red and traffic cone orange Amazon tree boas in existence. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and, and going back kind of to like the moving thing, it's like not only you need that basement or you may need, um, you need a building. 
yeah, yeah. full-time level, you may need a building that's zoned properly. I can't move to Georgia. I can't move right over the bridge. I live in Philly. I can't move over the bridge to Jersey because all my corn snakes are legal that aren't emails there. So it's like, yeah. there are some things that you may not think about beforehand that kind of, and I didn't, to be honest with you, this would be so much easier in uh, the Carolinas mm. because Georgia, we have pet dealer license laws. We have laws of things you can keep, even if it's just mildly venomous rear fang stuff. I'm actually shocked we can keep hognose snakes mm. because everything else that has like roughly that level of toxicity is illegal. So somehow hognose snakes pass that rule. Do they do they get down to species or do they just say like all rear fanged? Um, no, no, it's all rear fanged. So I can't keep like I've been to some of the South Carolina shows, which are disgusting. But <laughs> um, it, it's cool to get to see some uh, some like mildly venomous rear fang stuff, like uh, some of the some of the South and Central American colubrid species that are just mildly venomous. Uh, Baron's rat snakes are awesome to me. And if I ever have the ability to keep venomous, I'm getting Gila monsters. Uh, I love Gila monsters. <laughs> I wouldn't keep vipers, I don't think. Uh, but like Gila monsters and beaded are just such cool animals, man. What is it exactly? Uh, just the way they look, the color, uh, the fact they kind of match along with what I'm already into. Like I feel like it wouldn't be much of a stretch for me to keep a couple of Gila monsters when I'm keeping Brettles pythons and blue tongue skinks. Mm. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about blue tongue skinks. I mean, when did you get into those? How are you in the localities? Morphs, Australians, Indos, all that good stuff. Um, okay, so I've got um, a pretty small collection of those. I used to think that I was wanting to have like a room full of them because they were amazing and they're in really high demand. But the more I'm keeping them, the more I don't want to do that because they attract flies like nobody's business. <laughs> Like you got to um, they eat dog food uh, as a main part of their diet, which is great, except for the fact that if they kind of swish around some wet dog food and a little bit goes in the corner of the cage and you don't see it, the house flies are going to find it and it is going to be a big issue. Um, so I'm keeping I'm trying to keep more of a locality thing. There are a couple of more projects I would like to get into. Um, I have uh, New South Wales type Easterns which we can go into, I think that's a dumb name for them, but that's what the hobby calls them. It's not accurate. Um, I have Key Islands, which are a pretty rare Indonesian species that have only been bred in captivity a couple of times. I have a group of four of those, and I still have no idea what are boys and what are girls. And then I managed to track down some, uh, some Western Australia-type Western blue tongue skinks. And those are uh, those are very rare in the hobby. That's but, awesome. So you're you're gonna have to elaborate more because I don't know anything about about blue tongues. So like say okay. Easterns. I mean, why is that? Why is that technically incorrect? Okay, so um, Easterns are basically the uh, the coastal carpet python of the uh, blue tongue skink world. They're from they have the almost same range and locality as. Uh, coastal carpet pythons they go all the way up in northern queensland and they go further down than diamond pythons do actually so they're kind of a hybrid between as far as range goes they're kind of a hybrid between uh queen or between uh coastal carpet pythons and diamond pythons so they go down into uh victoria and over into south australia because they're a little bit more uh arid 
tolerant, you know, a little drier tolerant than a carpet python is. <laughs> so there's really three distinct types of uh, eastern blue tongue skinks. You have animals in the far north Queensland, which are more of a silvery, uh, grayish charcoal type look. Uh, I think those are in the U.S. I have not found that out for sure. Um, they're a little bit more like the uh, the Cape York coastal carpet pythons, if you've seen pictures of those. They're very, very similar. Um, then you have the, uh, the Queensland types, which they lack an eye band. They're significantly brighter, and uh, they're a lot bigger. And then you have the, uh, the black eye band kind, which have a very similar pattern to me to an inland carpet python. So the Brisbane or the South Queensland type uh, blue tongue skinks look more like a coastal carpet python from the Brisbane area. Um, so the southern types look more like an inland. They kind of have a similar uh, habitat to those animals too. Um, they have a really distinct black band behind their eyes. They are uh, significantly darker, and uh, they have more of a charcoal striping going down their back versus say the ones found in South Queensland, which are more of like a, a tannish to yellowish to orangish color. Mm. So in the U S we have for sure, um, true locality, um, animals from Victoria and from new South Wales, which TC Houston brought in who you guys have had on. Um, those animals are from, uh, those animals are from New Zealand and there's a few other bloodlines from Europe. But the biggest bloodline of the New South Wales um, Eastern Blue Tongue Skink are the result of a female that was accidentally smuggled into Europe. Wait a second. So, no, I'll describe it's a really cool story. Um, so, there was a company in Australia that was shipping some pipes to England. And the company was based right outside of Sydney. So, in those pipes, a female Blue Tongue Skink just kind of found a cool little place to hide and she got shipped all the way to Europe and the company while they were unloading stuff found this huge female blue tongue skink from Sydney and like what do we do with this thing so they got it to a guy named uh, Marcus Webb who's a big breeder over there and he bred her to a, uh, a Queensland type male so he made some animals that had a very similar look to the uh like the southern eastern types. Mm. So they have the black band. They have a little bit darker color. In my opinion, they're a little bit lighter, though. And then those were shipped in a couple of years ago, and that really increased the number of eye-banded blue-tongue skinks. Because, so, people in the U.S. call those things New South Wales or eye-bands. I like to call them eye-bands because I can look back on the actual lineage of those animals and tell you that they're... 50% Queensland, 50% New South Wales. They're not true. Uh, they're not true New South Wales animals. Right. But then, there, like I said, there are also true uh, New South Wales animals. I have a male that I know for a fact is a New South Wales. And then I have, uh, I'm going to be getting in a couple of animals that I know are from uh, Victoria or the Victoria area. And are those in much more high demand than, say, Indo animals that you can get pretty easily? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, Easterns are significantly more expensive than even Northerns. Um, they need colder temperatures, so, you know, I'm into them. Uh, 
So while Easterns are maybe more of the uh, coastal carpet python to diamond python equivalent, um, Northerns, which are more the more popular Australian animals, are probably more like the Darwin or the jungle carpet python equivalent. They and don't need as cold you, temperatures. That's where you see like those sunsets and the different morphs. Yes, they're mm -hmm. much more common because you're able to breed them with the uh, kind of more typical python cool down regime they need a higher basking spot of course because they're a lizard but you can still cool them down to you know 68 to 72 degrees and they're going to think that they're being cycled and stuff well my uh new south wales type easterns i had to cool them down to the low 50s wow so and, and are all those tricky to breed because i feel like i know a whole bunch of people that that have them but not not exactly people that are on them over and over again and doing it at mass um, the guys from RMB Reptiles seem to have it pretty well figured out, and I talked to them. Uh, I got a couple of animals uh, from them, uh, most notably the male that I uh, managed to breed to my female this year uh, came from RMB. So, yeah, cool guys. You've had them on. Um, really, it just seems to be an availability thing. Mm. It's just they're a little bit they need a little bit colder temperatures and people are afraid to take their expensive animals down to colder temperatures right yeah and it, it was funny having having ryan and ben on and they kind of chalked it up to beginner's luck but obviously obviously they were doing something right yeah yeah i, I hope they are able to breed their uh they have a melanistic female that i'm really hope they're able to breed because i think that's super cool i don't really like the albinos that much but i think the solid black easterns are really really cool animals yeah i didn't even know that that was in the states until they brought it on uh, yeah they're really expensive too so i would uh i'm gonna wait i really just want hets like i would like to have a het male because it's kind of a visual het mm. a for the yeah the um a for the you know visual trait because the visual trait's super cool and b because those animals probably have some genetics that aren't really in our bloodlines right now how did that come over do you know um they came from malaysia so <laughs> okay they came from malaysia which is the new german portal used to be stuff would pop up in germany now stuff is popping up in hong kong and u.s fish and wildlife is not happy about it so u.s fish and wildlife is watching blue tongue skinks very carefully which sucks because Don Patterson has some of the coolest blue tongue skinks in the world, but I can't get them because U.S. Fish and Wildlife will seize them. Oh. Basically, they had a uh, uh, not official rule, but an informal letter from the Australian government that said, hey, we never let these things go. If you start seeing these coming into your ports, they're not legal. So, you know, even the northern... Generalization, been... but yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia closed in the late 70s early 80s and oh yeah i guess the black all... ones popped up in like the mid 2000s how did that happen but at the same time there's records of blue tongue skinks being taken out of australia in the 50s um shinglebacks can actually go back and forth from what i understand i've never tried um mostly because i don't have i don't want to spend ten thousand dollars on a single shingleback <laughs> Is Casey Lazic still the only one who's keeping those or producing? I remember he produced them a few years back, but I, don't, I haven't followed up on it. Um, I think there's a couple of people that are working with the uh, the shinglebacks. I think they're kind of hush-hush about it. Mm. That and shinglebacks, they only breed like every other year, every couple of years, and they only have one or two babies. 
and they're paired for life, right? And they pair, yeah, they're they're very like tightly knit in the way they uh, they breed. Um, so yeah, and I think some people were actually a little upset with Casey because he bred a uh, he bred two subspecies of shinglebacks together, and people weren't happy about that. Mm-hmm. Is it I kind of, of those you can get what you can get kind of thing? I think it's one of those things where in the future we're either going to have hybrid shinglebacks or no shinglebacks, just yeah. because there's no they're not coming in. You know, they might come in every once in a while. You might be able to get some pure asper, which are the eastern type of the shinglebacks. But, I mean, I, I really think it's a shinglebacks. Just take it. What take what you're going to get? Because a, they're not going to be for sale much, and b, they're not coming in. Yeah, I mean, those are just. I mean, those are awesome animals. It's one yeah. of those animals that I feel like so many people have on their bucket list that we're never going to be able to get. Yeah, the Australians say they're the best pet now, lizard. But- Really? You talk to Australians, they'll say, yeah, that's by far the best pet lizard. And I know that blue tongues, I mean, have a lot more popularity over here than, or over there than they do over here, right? That's an availability thing, I think. Um, they've really had a big rise in popularity. Um, Northerns are more popular here than they are over there. Um, Easterns are really the more popular ones. And then they also, uh, the U.S. blue tongue skink hobby is very anti-hybridization. Even if you're breeding a, a northern to an eastern, they're distinct sub. Well, some people say they're distinct subspecies. I think we need to do some DNA work before we say that for sure, based on what we've seen with carpets. Um, but yeah, people are very anti-breeding an eastern to a northern in the U.S. Probably for good reason. Versus in Australia, where almost every pet quality blue tongue skink you see is going to be some kind of an intergrade. Right. So that they're like corn snakes over there. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I was so worried about breeding my my Easterns when I know for a fact that there's like middle schoolers that have bred Easterns over in Australia. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, these are these are so rare over here. I'm so scared. I hope I'm doing it right. And then I realized like, yeah, this is like a school project for five, for fifth graders <laughs> in parts of Sydney, you know. yeah but that's i mean it's still awesome that i mean people are starting to appreciate an animal that hasn't been worked with i mean an awful lot yeah at least over here yeah i think it's super cool um i still don't think many people really care about them i mean you can go on my instagram and you'll see like my brittles python pictures have like 100 likes and then i'll post a picture of a blue tongue skink and it's like 30 something (laughs) but i i feel like maybe even if the general public doesn't hasn't yeah. caught on 100% yet. I feel like a lot more breeders. I mean, just five years ago, I feel like probably when, when Brian Barczyk started talking about getting blue tongues. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Breeders definitely started to to get collections. And then, you know, I haven't seen an awful a lot of success from that, but I feel like I see more and more people with them. They're, they're harder to breed than I think a lot of people thought they would be. Uh, they're very violent breeders. Uh, I mean, they're, they'll straight up bite each other, and if they bite each other the wrong way. When I was breeding my, I was trying to breed my westerns. My female was extremely aggressive towards my male, mm. and um, he at one point just bit her in the head. And he was trying to lock up with her, and I had to separate them. Mm. And I was so I was so torn because on one hand, like westerns aren't super common in the U.S. at all by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I was like, oh, if I get these guys to lock up, that'd be awesome. But I also at the same time didn't want him to uh, like slip the wrong way and either like crush her cheek or some of her skin or take an eye out. So I had to separate them and she wanted nothing to do with them afterwards. 
Um, I did get one lock from them this year, so I was excited to see that. But I don't know. I, I kind of am not as hopeful with them as I am with my pair of Easterns I tried. And do you have to watch them? Does courting happen rather quickly yes. if it can happen? Yes, definitely. Um, basically, what will happen is the male will just run over and bite her and just kind of like manhandle her around. And you can tell uh, you can tell when it's consensual. Let's put it this way. It looks like something is very inconsensual until you see a female that wants no part of it and she'll try to kill your boy. Oh, damn. See, the, the weird thing is like king snakes do that, right? But females yeah. never really show defensive nature towards the male. Um, if the female is receptive with the blue tongues, she's not going to be she, – she'll like wiggle her tail and pretend to run away, but she'll like run three steps and stop and kind of look at him and wiggle her tail at him like, you got to <laughs> chase me, dude. But – if, if she's not feeling it, she'll either turn around and just bite him in the head or she'll like run at him with her mouth open. So it's very, very, uh, it's very nerve wracking. Yeah. It seems like it adds an extra layer to it. Mm -hmm. Also, I mean, you would think it would be hard to, to have a big colony of these and watch, you know, every single one of them. That's part of the reason why I kind of decided not to, uh, not to really expand much. There's still a couple things in blue tongues I think I'd like to get. Um, I feel like I probably should get a male hypo Eastern just for like a breeding diversity and see like I think people would want to buy them and I think they're really cool looking so I probably should get a boy one of those. Um, I wouldn't mind getting uh, maybe some of the Tannenbar Island ones which are known for being really mean so maybe I don't want those. And uh, I really think it would be cool to get um, some of the alpine animals, some of the uh, the blotched Ah. which are basically the diamond python of the skink world. They're from the more highland areas of uh, South Australia, and they go into Tasmania. Uh, they're beautiful animals. They're jet black except for these uh, white blotches down their back. They're either white, yellow, or orange. And I think there's kind of all of that look in the U.S. right now. That's awesome. And are they generally same same husbandry, same breeding, stuff like that? or They're like a diamond python. Um, I think there's only really one or two guys in the U.S. that have cracked their code, but there's a lot of people in Australia that have bred them because they just keep them outside in pens. Mm. Um, like, I really think that if you just figure out how to cool them down the way people cool down diamond pythons, I don't think it'll be that bad. I think people are just afraid to take – because they're a very rare animal. They're, they're like 2500 to 3000 apiece. They would be pretty hard to breed. Um, the other big thing about blue tongues is you can't tell what sex they are. <laughs> it's very hard to do. No. So, you know, you got to buy like four or five of them. So if you want to buy four or five of something when it's a hundred dollars each is not bad. But when you're talking about some of these animals, there's only like two guys breeding them and they're $3,000 a piece, you know, good luck. <laughs> yeah. And is it, I mean, does it, does it become more apparent with age or are you throwing animals together and seeing how it goes? Um, depends on the subspecies. Like there's some Australians that can look at an Eastern and be like, yeah, okay, that's a boy. That's a girl. I posted up pictures of my key islands and I disagree with everybody saying what they are <laughs> like, and you'll have people like, oh, that's a boy. That's a girl. That's a boy. That's a girl. So I think there's people that can tell like Northerns and Easterns, but I think it starts falling apart when you get to, especially some of these animals from like Papua New Guinea. And what are the telltale signs, I guess, if you were to assume, assume one's gender via visual inspection? I'm terrible at it. I'll tell you that, man. Uh, 
I know the females usually have like a like a smaller head versus a male, which is more of like a like a pointy head. Mm-hmm. Usually they'll say that a male is more of like a streamlined body and the female is more of like a she's got more bulk towards the back end of her. Um, there's guys that say that males have longer tails than females, but what really needs to happen is that uh, Benson Morrill needs to get a DNA test going so we can actually do what parrot breeders do, which is just take a little sample and mm. just get the doctor to tell us what it is because it's it's just not an exact science. And even guys in Australia will tell you, like, I can tell you the right thing four out of five times, but if you're right four out of five times, it means you're wrong one out of five times, which is pretty significant when you're trying to sell somebody a pair. Right. And I mean, theoretically, would you be able to tell via shed? Um, I mean, I guess if there was a DNA test, you'd be able to. Yeah. Um, I've had guys tell me you can pop them. I'm bad at popping snakes, so I don't even want to try to pop a skink. Yeah, I can imagine how you would do that. Yeah, I, I don't really, I don't want to try, so. And I mean, you can't probe them? Um, no, I don't think so. I think people have tried that. Um, there's some people that say a couple of species, you can take a flashlight and you can shine it on the back of the tail and see if you see hemipenes through that. But there's a lot of people that say they have a trick, but there's nobody that's 100% right. So, you know, how good your trick if you're not right 100% of the time? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could see now why people don't have as much success because you don't even know if you have a pair. Exactly, yeah, so... <laughs> You start seeing animals that are super expensive like that, and you realize like I don't have to breed. I don't have to buy two of them. I have to buy like five or seven of them, just to statistically I have a girl and a boy. Was that kind of your method when you got into them? Group? Um, so yeah, a little bit more so with my uh, my Key Island animals. I bought four of them just right off the bat because statistically speaking, I think you have a like a 12.5% chance or something. I don't know. I'm bad at statistics. Please don't do my math here. People, I'm not going to do it. Someone else yeah. may, but <laughs> I trust you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I just tried to get a group big enough that I could end up with a boy and a girl. Mm-hmm. And you said uh, you have some Easterns that you're pairing up. Are there any products in particular? So many... Any like project? I don't know if there's morphs or anything. Oh, or yeah. Just- um, I'm trying to get the I-band animals going with uh, some more genetic diversity. I'd really like to do that. Um, I'd like to get – there's um, some Brisbane locality animals in the U.S., and out of that, a uh, recessive hypo popped up. I think I'd really like to get one of those to play around with. Um, I'd like to get some het melanistics at some point, but I feel like that'd be pretty far down the road. And uh, – I don't know, really just uh, more genetic diversity in my group is kind of what I think I'd like to really nail down. And you're, you're pairing some of those guys together now? I paired some up in uh, January. So I on the one pair of Easterns I tried, I got four locks with them. And I'm about 54 days out. Gestation period is somewhere between 90 and 134 days. So I'm still not sure if she's gravid. She's kind of – she's been hugging the uh, – the cool, the warm end of her cage, which is a very good sign. Oh yeah, I can see you're pulling up some some blue tongue skink stuff. Yeah. So is the is this the uh, hypo Brisbane? Um. Yeah, that's a hypo Brisbane right there. I think that's uh yeah. Uh, TC Houston has a hypo Brisbane animal. 
Yeah, it's a cool animal. Yeah, I Do think you... those are really, really neat. I'd like to have a male. I'd like, not really, uh, I don't want to produce visuals, at least not for a little while. I'd like to just kind of outcross that and make some heads. So I can at least um, infuse some new genetic diversity into that morph because, again, it's kind of a family ladder versus a family tree situation. Right. And is there is there any um, – or have you had success yet with any blue tusk things, or is this your first year? Oh, no, this is my first year. So it's possible my female's gravid. Like I said, she's hugging the warm end of her cage, which is a very good sign. Um, she hasn't gone off food or anything. Uh, I'm starting to weigh her now just to see if maybe she gains a little bit of weight across the weeks. But I did everything I can do is the only way I can put it. Um, you know, I got them down to the low 50s. I warmed them up. I fed them. I got them to breed. So it's really up to them. Like I did everything right. It's just they're either going to go or they're not. Mm. And did you or have you dealt with live babies before? Live uh, no, this will be my first time. I'm really excited about oh, that. That's awesome. So it's cool because I get to, I feel like I figured out Brettles pythons, you know? So Brettles pythons has really shifted more from like a figuring the species out to selectively breeding the species, which happens with all keepers and herpetoculturists. You go from seeing the mystery to what can I do with this now that I figured the mystery out. Right. I'm having fun right now going into new species and having a new mystery to figure out if that makes sense so right now i've been focusing really most of my focus this year has been on my blue tongue skinks and i've also been buying up some northern emerald tree boas so Whoa. yeah yeah i think those are cool <laughs> is there any is there any chance that you would sway one side or the other maybe get rid of brettles or do you always want to have those as a i feel like i should always have some brettles you know, that's that's my real foundation for learning stuff. Um, it might not be my primary focus forever, but I feel like, you know, a clutch or two of brettles every year would be a good thing, especially now that people are coming to me because they want my brettles. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of funny and, that most people start with a ball python or a corn snake or something. Yeah. You start with brettles. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of cool too. But and, and no, that's not to mean that I don't love brettles. Like, brettles are still my favorite species of python by far. It's just... I kind of miss having the mystery. Right. You know what I mean? I miss having the, the whole looking at the female and not really know what's going on. And I still have that to an extent, but I can look at some of my female brettles right now and I can tell like, okay, you look like you're about to start your prelay shed. And with this female Eastern, she shed in the middle of like a month or two after breeding. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> she might've just done that. I don't know she's hugging the warm end. Maybe she's just happy to be warmed up after rumation or maybe she's gravid. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's nice to have a species dialed in, but it's also nice to not exactly know what to expect. Try to figure things out again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the Northern Emeralds, man. Uh, yeah. I have a really... I mean, obviously they're obviously a striking animal, but what got you into those? I, I've always liked them. Um, I'm not really a green tree guy, but I understand the appeal of green trees. You know, Justin Smith can get mad at me about that. <laughs> you um, can't say you don't like, you know, green trees, whatever, and then have emeralds. I mean, same thing. Yeah, different. I think emeralds are, they, they, they fix a couple of the problems that chondros have, mm. which is they're bigger, they're easier to get started as babies, and there's not a lot of people working with them. Um, I really got into them 
uh, if you want to get topical for you know current events and reptiles, I was sitting at a table with uh, Ian Bissell and Forrest Fanning, and they were saying how there's every there's a lot of people getting into northern emerald tree boas, but they are all taking the risk of getting wild caught in their collection. And the thing about wild caught emeralds is you're really rolling a dice every time you subject yourself to an import. You know, every um, they have a disease where they get a regurgitation syndrome. They can have diseases where you bring one in, all of a sudden your whole collection just crashes and dies. So there's people that have definitely had luck bringing in emeralds and getting them to become long-term captives and getting them to have babies. And I just listened to them hearing how I think Forrest's exact words were, there needs to be somebody that just won't take that chance. You know, there needs to be somebody that's doing nothing but buying up little babies and raising them up and not even taking a chance with sup Justin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you have to do kind of the dirty work and you're, you're the one you've decided you're the one. Yeah. I decided I wanted to try to be the one. So I've seen uh, just recently somebody put up a three-year-old female that was apparently captive born and bred. And I was really tempted to call that person up and say, what do you want for it? But I feel like I need to just focus on getting these captive born and bred babies or just at least captive born babies that have never eaten a meal in the wild and just raise them up from little red or little green neonates and then having them become adults, you know, in my care under my conditions where I know every meal they've eaten. And uh, again, Justin, I think you're listening here. I can get wild. I can get, uh, baby emeralds that were born from a wild caught female to eat frozen thawed the first time I offer them food. They just may and, throw it up the next day and do it until they die, but you know, whatever. That's only if they get the, they think it's uh, avian chlamydia that makes them do that. So the theory is that if they're in an importer's, um, warehouse or whatever, and they're feeding them parrots that have died from the Amazon as well, that the emerald tree bows will get the chlamydia from those parrots and then that's where the regurgitation syndrome comes from that's kind of the current thought process so you have an animal that is either born in the united states or has born in suriname and shipped out immediately you don't really have those problems Mm. so but that's what you have to do is you have to accept the fact that i'm going to be spending more money on an animal that might not breed until it's six years old versus trying to take a, a shortcut with them Right. And I mean, those animals aren't cheap, right? In compared, I mean, definitely in comparison to imports. No, no, no. They're like five to $700 where an import can be like 250 to 350. So like, it's, it's definitely, uh, I understand why somebody would be tempted to get a wild caught, especially a wild caught sub adult or a wild caught adult female or something like that. Cause we're reptile people. We want to take shortcuts. Right. Now there's now there's a whole bunch of green tree python versus emerald talk going on in the chat. They're the superior green snake on a stick. You can say what the superior Morelia is, but the superior green snake on a stick is clearly the emerald tree boa. I can't get past that head. There's something about it that seems misplaced for me. I love the head. Morelia, I, I think I think the green tree is nice and sleek, and I think it looks great. The emerald, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. It's out of place. The head's too big and weird. I am a little afraid of their teeth, though, because their teeth are gigantic. And, That's also a fair point. Yeah. 
Um, I definitely am very cautious when I do handle my emeralds. A lot of people say northerns are mean, but again, they're people that are bringing in wild cots. Mm. So I haven't really noticed mine are like any meaner than like a baby brettles. But, you know, I only have, you know, a couple at my house right now, and I'm going to have a few more coming in. Hopefully in the next couple months, I think I'd like to, I have like kind of a plan for what I'd want to do with those guys in the future. And it all revolves around me just getting these little babies and doing the hard work of, I actually have to spend that initial extra 300 bucks. You know, I have to do that initial, I have to raise them up from little red babies into bigger green snakes that might not breed until they're six years old. Mm. But, you know, going back, I talked about the, uh, how I'd like to have like, say red team, blue team, purple team. I'd like to have like five male Northern emeralds and then 15 females. Mm. So then one year I can do this five, this five the next year, then this five, and then the cycle repeats because Northern emeralds and emeralds in general, and really tree bows in general, you have to skip a year, at least a year, maybe two years. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> he dominated red line. He's got trough scares on the real Corrales. <laughs> so That's are, pretty funny. Are, are you interested in any of the a particular project within Northerns? I know there's a few different things. I love the anaconda phase. A lot of people try to breed Northerns for high white, but I think the anaconda phases are the coolest ones. And then I've got some that I'm kind of... Those are like, sorry, I just want to, I just want to like elaborate. They're the ones like the light green with the darker green pattern. Yeah. So they have like, they're the light green. And instead of having white spots, their white spots kind of just shrink down so little that they only have, because with Northern, Northern Emeralds, you'll have, they're kind of a light green. And then there's like a darker green outline on their white spotches. So with these ones, the light, the white spotches are just gone and they only have the either really dark green or kind of like aquamarine bluish uh, dots on them. Yeah, there's a good picture of them. Yeah, man, I think that they look so cool. Is really cool. Liz, I, I didn't really get it, but from this perspective and that particular animal or like this one down here, I mean, yeah, that's, that's top notch. That's so awesome. cool, isn't it? And then I've got some more that are going to be coming in soon where they have these little black spots on them. So... Like a I'm mite kind of phase, wondering. but in yeah, a little bit like a mite phase chondro. So it's pretty subtle right now, but I think as they grow up, I've seen some melanistic um, emeralds that have popped up. They're just Hispanic chondro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you've so so this. I've seen melanistic um, emeralds, and they look really cool. So I'm kind of wondering if maybe these babies in a couple of you know, a couple of years, once they start getting older, they'll get really, really black. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. And, and James, uh, James Lewis in the chat, he breeds boas. And I guess he made a good point with, with your method is the fact that like live bears should probably get that year off. I mean, yeah, they should get a year or two off. Definitely. Because it takes so much out of them and they have to hold the babies for so much longer. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have any interest in some of the high white stuff or? Um, I mean, I totally get some. I'd get some Miss Willie line stuff, uh, no doubt. Um, especially if I want to have a group that large, which it's going to take me years. It might take me 10 years to get a group that big. Um, so, you know, there's room for me to have like a really high white male and then like two or three really high white females and then, you know, 
reduced patterned animals and anaconda phase animals and high black ones. So there's a lot of room for, uh, you know, diversity in there. Any interest in basins? I don't get basins. How dare I hate you to say it say like that. <laughs> they're cool and they're big, but I don't get why they're so overhyped to northerns other than the fact that they can't come in. That and I'm just not I'm not a stripe guy to tell you the truth. Like just in snakes in general, there's guys that like lose their mind when something has a dorsal stripe. And it doesn't do anything for me. The only basins I've seen, I might actually I actually take that back. I probably would get like a pair of basins, yeah. but not the white striped ones. But uh, Gary Schiavino, he has some really, really old basins. And when basins get old, they start turning like an aquamarine blue color and they're really? beautiful. Yeah. Is that like when they're like 14 or 15. I mean, it's probably like humans going gray. Like, wow. I don't think they're born with it, but like when they start getting really old, they, uh, they start turning blue, which is pretty awesome. You just got to wait 15 years. Yeah, you got to wait 15 or 16 years, and then they'll turn blue. <laughs> but, I mean, I've heard that they're, you know, they're a larger animal, right? And they're a little bit more... Of a I think they're darker, demeanor. too. Uh, um, I wonder if that's because they're more captive bred, though, as far as the demeanor goes. Right, that Because, like sense. I said, my, my northerns don't really seem to be that mean. You know, there's definitely tricks to holding them and uh, getting them to eat. I've noticed a lot of people have problems getting northern emeralds to eat, especially as babies. And the trick that I've found that really works is if you have a uh, frozen thawed fuzzy, you got to get it super hot. Like you put it in water that's not boiling, but it's definitely steaming. And then you just put it in front of them and they'll just kind of do that thing where they just kind of open their mouth and just take it down. They don't really strike aggressively. At least mine don't. But I have a very small, uh, very small sample size, so... I might be wrong about that. Yeah, that's interesting. And you, do you feed them at night, or are they kind of like condors that turn on at night? But uh, again, we'll, we'll talk to Justin Smith here. I believe in his uh, his fuzzy cutting method because I definitely do that, and it definitely helps. So let's yeah, explain he, the uh, fuzzy cutting method. Where uh, if you put little slits in the hide of a mouse, especially for young snakes, uh, they're able to digest it a little better. The digestive enzymes are able to break through the uh, the hide of the mouse and uh they'll be able to digest it a little bit better so my thoughts are since emeralds are theoretically so predispositioned to throw up any little mm. any little thing has got to help right. even if mine don't have the the avian chlamydia disease you know they still might throw up i don't know so i just i try to feed them smaller meals every two weeks so Again, it's going to take me forever to raise these things up. It's it's not going to be a quick process at all. Yes. Yeah, so I um, it's actually it's weird. the 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 first time I saw the the slitting the pinkies is I believe it's Connie Hurley. She does corn snakes, and she did a study on on slitting different pinkies and absorption rates and all this. And the corn snakes who had the slit pinkies were growing a lot more. Yeah, I believe it. And then. Uh, and then I guess I thought I to apply that to chondros, but that's not really a unique thing because um, I actually talked to this guy who works at the pet store down the street, which sounds like an unlikely place to find someone who worked with Trooper Walsh in like that's crazy. in the nineties <laughs> at some point. But um, but he was telling me that that back in the day with chondros, they were they were already doing that. So 
I don't know whether that was a popularized method at that point, but um, so that's not the first time that that's crossed over from what he told me. Yeah. And, and it's funny that I have a guy who lived with Trooper Walsh and knows Rico and all that stuff who works at a pet store literally like a few blocks from here. I found out Rico lived 45 minutes away from me pretty recently. So I'm, I'm really late. upset that I was, I'm not older, you know, right. especially now that I'm actually getting into the, the tree boas and stuff. Oh my gosh, man. I could have learned so much from Rico. Like he yeah. was, he was just a couple towns above me. He lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then supposedly he lived in Dahlonega, Georgia, which is not far. Neither one of those are far away from me. Oh, so I didn't realize that you were so close to Tennessee. Yeah, I'm probably, I mean, I'm about like a two and a half hour drive from Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga at least. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm in North Georgia. Gotcha. I guess you don't, you don't really hit up many shows, do you? Um, I've never, I've never been to the show except for Daytona, which I did with Billy Hunt, uh, last Daytona. Billy Hunt's a super cool guy. Uh, but yeah, well, yeah no, we'll I don't that's huh? some fun. We've been, we've been yeah, yeah, you gotta have him, him on. Billy's a super cool guy. Get him on, uh, get him on alone. Yeah, he he's trying to uh, get me to move to Tampa and be his like partner in Morelia <laughs> down there. Hey man, it's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Not, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll come visit at least. I <laughs> I love Florida. Like Florida is one of my favorite places in the world. I go down to Florida pretty often. Um, I love the, I love how it's not freezing cold there in the wintertime, except for Southeast Carpet Fest, which got pretty darn cold. In the, I know, I know. Nighttime. I was, I was waiting to be there for the summer weather and it wasn't there. At least my, my, what I would consider summer weather. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. But going back to the, um, the snakes growing larger from having the cut belly stuff, I actually did an experiment with, uh, my first clutch of brittles where I would, weigh the snake, then weigh the mouse, and then weigh the snake after it pooped the mouse out. And I did that for like 350 meals oh, for all shit. of them. So I was able to figure out that they grow, like snake weight increases by about 40% of what the mouse weight was every meal. Wow. And that lines up pretty well with uh, some experiments people did with Burmese pythons. And it, I think somebody did some experiments with ball pythons, and they pretty consistently that – if you feed a snake a hundred gram mouse or a hundred gram rat, it's going to gain about forty grams in its mm. growing stage. Wow! So I'd like to try to do some where I do it with the uh, the the slit ones, right? To see if that changes anything because I actually have that data. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And and I think that the um, at least the the idea behind it in in corn snakes and i guess would still apply to chondros and stuff like that is the fact that for whatever reason digesting the hair and the skin of the mouse may be different from the babies who typically eat lizards and maybe yeah. I, I don't know it just helps them digest it better for whatever reason i mean they definitely have a hard time digesting some of the some of the hair i mean it hair is undigestible to begin with but um have you ever fed a a python a bird you ever done like a, a chick or something like that? Maybe to my olive, because uh, I, I had okay. quail and chicks at one point, but I don't they have remember. a very hard time digesting the feet of a bird. Mm. If you look through like the poop of a snake, hey, it's kind of gross. It's really like sloopy poop if you feed <laughs> <laughs> if you feed a snake a bird, but they have a very hard time digesting the feet. Ah, uh, 
and that yeah, is i don't know why that popped up but yeah i mean i've even seen when i when i feed my king snakes snakes which you would think that they would digest very well because they're naturally you know inclined to to eat snakes sometimes i would get some like skin or i guess it would be scale i don't know know, but sometimes i get some undigested snake parts in there which i thought was interesting like maybe that's not a bad thing i'm not sure i mean it gives them a little roughage it's gotta gotta help there be some consistency but uh I recently watched the Crocodile Hunter episode where he went to Komodo and he dug through the Komodo dragon poop and found the little claws from the baby Komodo dragon, the giant adult Komodo ate. So there's some stuff they just just don't digest well. And I guess that just reigns true for any animal at all. There's no benefit to digesting hair because there's no nutrients in hair. So why waste the energy to digest hair? Like corn. Yeah, exactly. There's no reason (laughs) to try to digest a corn shell. So just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's a good place to end this two-hour conversation on the... yeah great corn yeah yeah <laughs> um so yeah is there is there anything that you're looking forward to in the future of whether it's breeding projects all that stuff uh, that people should keep an eye out for um hopefully i'll be having some brittles clutches coming up in the next couple of weeks and i'd be really excited if i managed to breed uh at least eastern blue tongue skinks like i said my westerns bred once so maybe i'd get some baby westerns that'd be awesome but one breeding is less hopeful than you know four right but, well yeah I have, uh, I have faith in you yeah that'd be awesome I'll, I'll get them one day it might take me a little while but i'll get them one day um yeah instagram uh cannon fire reptiles you can kind of watch me there you can look at me on facebook is casey cannon i don't awesome. really have yeah i don't really have a cannon fire reptiles facebook page that i use i used to but i found out that uh Facebook doesn't really show as many people stuff if you share from your page. So I just stopped. So I just use my name. Perfect. And I'm going to, um, I shared your post today. If anyone wants to go check that out out, as well as I'll probably, uh, when I put this episode out, I'll put some information for you and stuff like that down in the description. So check that, check that out. I can't talk now after like two hours of this. (laughs) Yeah, it's all good, man. PortCityPythons.com, PortCityPythons, Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. You know where to find us. Casey, thanks for hanging out. Yeah, cool, man.